We are teen moms, single mothers, mothers who want sex work that were addicted to crack. We're not your average good girls. We are survivors of domestic abuse, sexual trauma, but we're not your damsels in distress. We are women with moxie and grit. We are game changers and powerhouses. We are women who have not only been to the belly of hell and survived, we are mothers who managed to bring something good back. We came out on the other side as attorneys, doctors, artists, nurse practitioners, homeowners, counselors, and so much more. We are 20 mothers who make a difference in this world. Read our stories and witness how. That's a description of the book Infamous Mothers by my guest, author and activist Sagacious Lovingston. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Air. How can we change the narrative about so-called reprehensible or irresponsible mothers to acknowledge their strength and power? Joining me is Sagacious Levingston, who took a detour from her Ph.D. dissertation on infamous mothers in literature to explore infamous mothers in life. Welcome to University of the Year. Thank you. You know, usually for University of the Year, we interview faculty, but occasionally we also interview graduate students whose project for their dissertation is so original and also has a public impact. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see your Ph.D. project is that it somehow jumped off the pages of what you were writing into your life and into the lives of women around you and actually started what many are calling a movement. I'm wondering if you can back us up and tell us, as you do in your book, tell us your own story. So there are so many pieces to my story. Which piece are you interested in? The piece that brought you first, unexpectedly, into a Ph.D. program, mm. you know, the, the sort of things that should have, would have, you know, could have gotten in your way, mm-hmm. and then the parts that took you out of that journey temporarily into a project with social impact. So the pieces that brought me into my Ph.D. program, um, I was on the south side of Chicago And I remember my brother and I, we had a huge fight. My mom left me in charge of her place, her apartment. And she was very specific when she said, do not let your brother come in because he's been showing some behaviors that I don't agree with. And I did that. And he became offended. He broke into the house, and he fought me. The thing is, my brother is blind, and I realized that if he... Um, I realized that that was a, it was a bad situation for the both of us. And so right there, I was watching my children watch me fight off my brother, and I realized I needed to get out of town. And so I was already a McNair scholar doing research on black men in prison, and somehow I... Um, used that 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 position that I was in. Um, it became an escape for me, and so I came to the UW. I applied to the UW, got in, um, and somewhere during the course of that study, I started studying women and mothers, and I fell in love with the process. What initially started as an escape from Chicago turned into this passion and this pursuit of just understanding women and the value of women, something I had never been taught. You talk about when you did encounter in classes the idea of feminism and sort of the position of women, that you also felt a bit invisible, like your own story wasn't represented. So, like I said, I came here to study men in prison because that was what the hot topic was at the time, um, mass incarceration. And in those discussions and even growing up, no one had ever taught me to study 
women. You know, you look at magazines, you're always learning about, you know, you walk past the newsstand and you're, you see articles that say um, 10 ways to make your man happy, five <laughs> ways to get a man or, you know, whatever it is. And, and, and that thing is kind of represented in conversations in the household and in the community, et cetera. But when I came to the UW and I started studying men, um, somehow I ran across a professor who I ran across. My, no, my office mate was studying feminism, and she really encouraged me to look into it. And when I went there um, and started studying the literature, I discovered so much of the um, anxieties and the obstacles I had faced. There was a language for it. There was a um, there was research for it. And it, it. I learned about the glass ceiling and things like that. And so I started falling in love with the process. But I also realized that women like me were absent from the discussion. So single moms from the south side of Chicago who was also Ph.D. students, there was not that sense of complexity in the literature. And so that for me became kind of my entry point as far as the research was concerned. You write that one of your, you know, I guess one of your goals is to change or disrupt stereotypes about black mothers. Mm-hmm. Um Back to your choice of Ph.D. topics, you went into the English department and, are, are, you know, we're working with literature. Why not sociology or, you know, African-American studies or something, School of Human Ecology, where they're working with mass incarceration? What drew you to literature and what role do you think that played? I've always liked stories. Um, I've always been fascinated with the idea of the griot, the person in African villages who is able to recount a tribe's history and family members for generations, um, different professions within that tribe. And so narrative, I've seen, I see the value in narrative. I see the value of narrative um, as shaping a community, shaping people's perceptions of themselves. And I think that often we, as a society, privilege technology and we privilege um, statistics. But for me, narrative is important because it kind of helps us think about the way that we can use the technology and the way that we can use the statistics. The statistics themselves are um, a form of narrative. So um, I value storytelling because I understand um, that it shapes people's lives. And sometimes if you read about a character... Um, you can forget who you are and become that person. It, it allows you to imagine a different identity, a different place and time. I noticed that the first chapter of your dissertation focuses on a work of speculative fiction. Yes. You no, know, and I, I guess that's another thing that literature would do is to imagine a brave new world or a not so brave new world, or you know whether it's The Handmaid's Tale or um, something else. And um, the work that you write about in, in your first chapter by a Nigerian-American writer certainly opens up this question of infamous mothers that you mm. later um, go on with in, in terms of your own work outside of academia. But can you talk about this first chapter and the, the work that you focused on, a, a, a novel called Who Fears Death? Yes. So one of the things that um, you've just mentioned is the idea of the speculative fiction and and. And we talked a little bit about what narrative can do for you. And so what I appreciate about speculative fiction is it helped us think about life beyond what we understand as realistic or 
um, novels, you know, work because they represent reality. Um, if a novel fails at representing reality, then we fail to believe in that particular novel. Um, science fiction allows us to think beyond what we see as real. And one of the things and that I've struggled with in my own work is in novels, when you see a woman like me who's a single mom with six kids, we there's a box that she fits in. Um, we can't imagine her as a Ph.D. candidate. We can't imagine her as a business owner because it's not part of our um, everyday thinking. But in science fiction, um, a woman like me can do extraordinary things. She can transform a society. She can um, save someone from a dictator because it's science fiction, it's speculative fiction. And so in Who Fears Death, you get the story of a woman who has been um, brutally um, raped and left for dead and ostracized by her family, um, her husband and her community. And what you see is an alliance that's formed between her and the child that was born of that violence. And you see the ways in which this ostracized woman is able to overthrow a regime. Um, and that was, that for me is kind of the epitome of what I think of when I think of an infamous mother. This person has been kind of thrown away, but has somehow managed to come back and transform and make a difference in the very society that has dismissed her. So you start with someone who is a victim, a victim of rape. Her child then is also a victim of being ostracized or yes. almost punished for the way she came into being. Yes. Um, but then you have that figure become a change agent. Yes. Um, and can you talk about the, the terminology, you use it in the chapter about this character, uh, infamous mothers. Um, to, to be an infamous mother, you write, is a woman who becomes a mother under reprehensible and detestable circumstances, but chooses to carry and care for her child anyway. Hmm. Despite her outsider status, she manages to change society. Yes. How did you come up with the term infamous? So in the research... Um, so there's a branch of feminist studies called motherhood studies. And in that research, a woman named Audrey Rich wrote about her experience as an outlaw mom. And I always say that an outlaw mom is a mom that if the rest of society is saying you should, your kid should be in bed by eight, the outlaw mom says, no, my kid is going to be in, in bed by nine. So she kind of, um, she breaks the law, but it's, within an acceptable way. It's in a way that people, oh, I don't agree with it. You're kind of getting on my nerves. You're be, you're annoying by doing these things. But um, it's not a moral, um, it's not a moral infraction. With infamous mothers, the things that they do and things that they've done, there is a moral component that society judged them for being unethical. They, you know, you're a sex worker. You're someone who has... Um, abuse drugs while you're pregnant. So there's a different type of stigma associated with an infamous mother. And so I wanted to look at that population. Um, you, you're a sexual deviant because you're living outside of heteronorm um, heteronormativity. Um, you're a heterosexual woman who's living outside of um, heteronormativity, or you're not a heterosexual woman and you're living outside of heteronormativity. So the idea that somehow you are a stain on society, um, I wanted to develop those characters and say, okay, well, yeah, I understand that, you know, these are the ways in which they're marginalized, but what are the extraordinary things that can happen from the margins? 
At what point did you realize, as you were trying to work on the dissertation, this academic thing, that you were being drawn into things from your own life and the women around you, real women, not literary mm-hmm. characters? But at what point did, did that sort of blurring happen? So a couple of things. Um, when I was working on a dissertation, I was frustrated by the fact that I was not able to find the number of stories that I was interested in. I found enough books to actually complete the dissertation, but it wasn't enough voices for me. I didn't like the idea that they were there was such a, a few, um, a slim selection. At the same time, I was doing work with the Odyssey Project, and I was listening to the stories of women who were going through the Odyssey Project. I was thinking about my own story. I was thinking about my grandma's story, my mom's story. And I was thinking about the stories of the women who were um, in my community back at home. And I realized that between, that among all of those different stories, I had enough stories where I can kind of, I can make the argument that these people exist. Um, They're not the exception. There's a whole world of women that we have untapped and and unexplored, um, whose stories that have been left untapped and unexplored. And I wanted to kind of bring light to those stories. And so this project came about um, because if you look at the the stories that are, exist, they would have told us, we would have gotten one picture from them, the idea that, oh, this is, there's slim pickings, there's the exception. But the unwritten um, reality was that these women were doing extraordinary things. We just hadn't brought attention to them. And they often didn't know how extraordinary they were, too. So I see that the project that you've undertaken to kind of elevate their stories to help them get the stories out is one of empowerment and one of changing how they see themselves and therefore how their children see their mothers as well. One time I heard you give a keynote address um, where you talked about the way society treats new mothers in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about that, the way we sort of in American culture just kind of put a woman in a room <laughs> with yes. a baby. And, yes. um, so a couple of things. So, uh, so to quickly go back to the point you just made, um, one of the challenges the women had with the book project was they were never, they struggled with the idea that their story had value. It's like, that. I just lived this life. I haven't done anything extraordinary. What is there to talk about? And so part of the work of the project was to really help them understand and get comfortable with the value of their lived experiences. They're often used to seeing themselves portrayed um, on the nightly news um, through mug shots or through whatever narratives we see on the news, or they were portrayed as these women that they were, they, they can see themselves in them in terms of complexion and race, but they can never see themselves as being as accomplished as these women. And so there are these two extremes. And so how do you find value in just the average everyday live life? Um, That was kind of the um, challenge that we faced when we were going through the project. As far as moms are concerned, I think it's the most unnatural and strangest thing in the world to kind of, um, we understand that women have children, but to kind of, 
have these women, these women, we, we have, in our, the way that we under, do mothering in this society, women have babies, we lock them in the house, dad goes to work or dad is not around, and the mom is left to get to know this kid that um, they're meeting for the first time, you know, outside of the womb, and then and the kid has his own personality, and the mom is facing their own challenges, and um, there's no instruction manual, there's no training, there's often no community for the mom. She's just left to deal with this life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and then she's not supposed to complain about it. She's not supposed to um, feel overwhelmed or stressed. And if she does, she has to do it in an acceptable way. And so all of these constraints that we're putting on moms, for me, um, it, seemed, it seems not only unreasonable, but it seems dangerous for both the mom and the child. Um, and so a lot of my work is about just helping, um, in a funny way, helping society and culture, um, helping society, you know, really rethink this mom and child dynamic early on um, so that it lays the foundation for us to have tougher conversations along the way. What kind of tougher conversations? So one of the things that really inspired my work was reading the story about a mom, a single mom who had several children, and she ended up killing one of those children. And when I read the articles, the, the when I read the article and the comments under the article, the focus was on how evil the mom was or how unfit she was. And as a researcher, it was important for me to explore the comments or to explore avenues of possibilities that had not been addressed. So I wanted to figure out what would be a new approach to this type of um, scenario. And I started thinking about the idea that this woman had had several children and apparently she had no problem with her kids or she liked being a mom or um, I'm, I'm thinking that she didn't imagine, even if she didn't like being a mom, because I don't know the woman, I didn't know the woman, um, don't know the woman. Um, there was something in her that I don't think from day one said, when I, by the time I have my fourth or fifth child, I think I'm going to just go ahead and kill it. Um, kill him or her. So what got her to that point? And one of the stories I remember, um, one aspect of her story I remember reading was she was at church and the members of a, a couple in her church asked her, um, do you mind if we adopt your child because we see that you're struggling with the kid? And she said, no, and I don't want you adopting my baby. And when after the, she um, killed the baby, that question was revisited. Why didn't you accept that offer? And she said, well, I didn't want to seem like a bad mom. And by not wanting to be a bad mom, she became the very definition of a bad mom. She killed her baby. So the question for me, that for me became the entry point. What type of pressures do we put on moms when we think about what, it, what does it mean to be a good mom? And how does that pressure... Um, set moms up for failure inevitably? Or how does that f pressure put children in harm's way inevitably? And so that, for me, became a very provocative and fascinating approach to the work. 
And would that then lead you to conclude that by asking to adopt her child, these so-called savior figures that would have come in actually made the situation worse by making her somehow feel inadequate, by not, not saying, what can we do to support you? Yes. I think <clears throat> that for me became really the one of the points that would become the cornerstone of my work. The idea that I believe that most moms start out with very good intentions. Most moms love their children, and most moms want the best for their children. But once the reality of motherhood kicks in, and it's a reality that no one can explain to um, a new mom or a mom of multiple children because that reality changes with each child and each child's circumstances and with the mom's circumstances, once that reality kicks in, and a mom finds herself struggling, we as a society want to rush in and save the baby from the mom. But I challenge people to think about how can we support and bolster the mom because by supporting her, I believe that she's automatically going to support her children. And so it really kind of became a cornerstone of the work. It became kind of a guiding principle of the work. If you support the mom, the mom will in turn take care of the child versus taking the child away um, from the big bad mom. We're going to talk more about infamous mothers when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. As a little girl of about seven or eight, Sagacious Levingston dialed zero for the operator weekly and asked to be connected to the White House because she was confident she could hold a conversation with the most powerful person in the country. That's a little blurb that was included in the cover story of Bravo magazine about my guest today, Sagacious Levingston. We are talking about her book and her work on infamous mothers. Okay, let's talk about that seven- or eight-year-old that was calling the White House from the south side of Chicago. Um, I think one of the things that my mom did, and I'm always grateful for, she did a really great job of raising me to be confident. She always um, praised me as a kid, you know, telling me how smart I was and how proud she was of me and how she struggled as a C student, but she always admired that I just caught on to things quickly. And so that became kind of um, how I understood and saw myself. And she explored, we traveled and we did things together. And so the world that she created for me was boundless. And so it was very, it was for me in my mind, it was a small feat to call the president. He was only... Um, uh, a zero away. And even though I had never, I was never able to make a connection, um, I just saw it more as um, the timing wasn't right or he was just always out of the office at the time. I didn't see that there was a distance between me and him. And I think that, um, I like that story because it became the very thing that grounded me and brought me back to who I am 
when life and other people's kind of ideas about me took me away from the core of who I am. In the section of your book where you are talking about your own story, you make it clear that you are a survivor yourself of domestic abuse, of Mm -hmm. abuse of various kinds. Can you talk about that and what that can do to a woman's self-esteem? I think it's important before I get to that story to kind of talk about the ways in which life had kind of broken me down before I had gotten there. Um, One of the things that I was confused about is my mom had raised me to be smart and to work hard and to explore life and to try new things. But once I left her house, it's almost like um, being caught up in traffic and cars were coming everywhere and I was always in danger. That That's how I felt being um, in conversation with other women. You know, there were always discussions about my skin being too dark or my hair not being the right texture. Um, I always felt that I was one step away from being ran over by something big and fast and um, which was other people's judgments, other people's opinions. Um, the world hadn't gotten the education that my mom was giving me. They hadn't gotten, the the community I was in hadn't gotten that level of support that my mom was giving me. And so I was always caught in the crossfires of other people's limitations of themselves. And that over time broke me down because I felt like an outsider. Um, I felt um, that it wasn't enough to be smart. It wasn't enough to be confident. I had to find a way to, I had to have a man. That became, for many women in my community, their gold standard of what it meant to be a woman, to have a man. Sort of a validation that they were a real woman. Yes. And so at that time, um, the way that I, I think subconsciously, the way that I was thinking is, well, if I just check this box, let me just get a man. If I get a man, then I can go on and be great. And so I don't think I even knew how to choose a good partner. I just, whatever person expressed any interest in me, Um, was good enough. And that kind of set me up for a series of relationships that were um, unhealthy and in some cases very abusive because I didn't know how to vet a good partner, in part because um, having a good partner was never the standard or part of our training. It was just having a man. And in the book, you have 20 stories, you Mm -hmm. know, stories of 20 women, and so many of them were beaten, Mm -hmm. raped, um, abused, imprisoned, um, a bag over their head or mm-hmm. some their throats being, you know, strangled or whatever. Can you talk about the extent to which abuse, violence against women is part of the story you're telling? You know, when I started the work, it was not part of the story at all. I, I had no idea. I thought my story was the exception. Um, I thought that I had experienced the things that I experienced and I was... Um, the fluke. I was the the example of what went wrong. I didn't realize that my story was as common as it was. I didn't realize that my story was the norm. And that reality kind of became the byproduct of the work. I didn't realize, when I started this work, I was specifically looking for the stories of marginalized moms who were doing extraordinary things in society. 
And part of the definition of infamous mothers, at least the way that I was constructing it, was that a woman had to somehow be stigmatized, but also be doing something extraordinary. And so when I asked the women, um, can you tell me about the ways in which you're stigmatized? I was expecting them to talk about their crack addiction or sex work or being a single mom. But the women always went back to a time in their life where they had experienced some type of violence, whether it's um, incest as a three-year-old or four-year-old or um, their dad had sold them for sex as a five-year-old. For them, the stigma had begun began way earlier um, than the kind of moment that I was thinking about, and that was eye-opening for me. You have a lot of teen mothers, a lot of women who find themselves trying to be a mother when they're they're children themselves. Um, And you also tell lots of stories where just just incredible violence against Mm -hmm. women. Um, And you say that's not what you expected to hear, that it was more widespread than you thought. That was not what I was expecting to hear. I was expecting the stories to start with again, the stigma that we as a society perceive, the things that we judge the most. But for the women, um, the stigma for them started the moment um, they had been violated. Um, That was for them the moment that um, their sense of being reprehensible or detestable, um, their experience of being reprehensible, detestable started. And that, for me, ironically... um, or coincidentally, um, this book came out the same month that the Me Too yeah. movement went viral. And I was very, um, that was important to me because even in those discussions, these women are not um, often included in um, in that movement. Their stories are not as prevalent. Right. You're more apt to hear about a high power yes. person from Hollywood or on the news who's being harassed and inappropriately treated at work, yes. but you're not hearing about a 13-year-old being raped on the south side of Chicago. Yes. And it's almost as if the way that we, we treat these women, but a way that we understand that it's there's a, a sense of um, ambiguity or a, a sense of suspicion. Well, does she qualify as someone who's... Um, that we can kind of see as a victim or a survivor of these circumstances? Or did she ask for, or is it part of her lifestyle? Or is she a good candidate to be seen um, uh, for us to have a discussion around the violence that she's experienced? And so she's a good candidate to talk about the ways in which she's a criminal, but I don't know if she's a good candidate for us to talk about the ways in which she's experienced this violence. Um, And so the way these women tell these stories about their lives, there is no sense of, um, they don't talk about themselves as victims. They don't talk about themselves as survivors. Um, They just tell their stories and they tell them in a way that helps us understand the issues on a much deeper level. Um, And so that's one of the things that I appreciate about them. I know you've got Amazing stories included in this collection called Infamous Mothers, a sort of beautiful coffee table book, I should say, with photographs and stories of 20 different women. Can you, you share um, one of the stories that stands out to you as an example of what you're talking about? One of the stories that I feel um, is a really good 
if, if I were to choose a story to kind of help us understand the issues that this book addresses, um, Tanisha's story would be the one because it it's just rich with the challenges, with examples of the challenges these women, the 19 other women will ultimately be finding themselves facing in these stories. And so Tanisha's story begins, should I? Should I? Mm-hmm. It begins, I was a teenage mother. I got pregnant while I was still in high school, but I successfully finished. I also have connections to the adult entertainment industry. I worked for four years as a stripper shortly after I gave birth to my son. It was the first job that I got, but in truth, it was a job I sought out for many reasons, primarily because it fit perfectly into every insecurity and all the negative messages I had received over the course of my life about my beauty, my body, and my sexuality. And the money was good, sometimes even great, and I needed money. Part of me was rebelling through being a teen mother, through sex, and yet another part of me was doing exactly what I was programmed to do. I remember it being a huge deal in my family because good girls, smart girls, girls who lead school assemblies and make the honor roll don't get pregnant in high school. Though the men and boys in my family kind of did whatever they wanted. Case in point, shortly after I found out I was pregnant, a male cousin got two women pregnant at the same time. Even my own father, who had two long-term domestic partnerships, five children and waited 22 long years to marry my stepmother, was shaking his head. The males in my family had a freedom not afforded to the women and girls. I felt like I had let my father down, like I had let my whole family down. And so what I like about this particular story is a couple of things. Um, It's a lot of things. But I like that she takes ownership of the choices that she's made, Mm -hmm. which is often not what we hear about this particular group of women. I like how she also says... But this path was kind of set out for me. It was kind of um, predestined. And part of the part of that was the ways in which I was raised, the programming that I was um, I grew up under. But that programming is not specific to her household. She's talking about male and female dynamics. And you can see mm-hmm. a lot of it is what we is is consistent with a larger American culture. Sure, the double standard. She yes. identifies that very clearly. Yes. The other thing that I like about this is I remember um, speaking with um, a older, um, established professor, white male, who was asking me about the work that we do. And he says, you know, you should always be the one doing this work because, you know, these women... Um, they they don't know how to talk right. They won't know how to. They don't know how to talk right. And um, Tanisha's exa- story is one of many examples where um, that myth is proven wrong. Right. The myth that she will not be able to speak for herself. Exactly. That she won't be able, and she won't be able to do so in a way that's intelligible, or in a way that um, is eloquent, or in a way that can be heard and understood by others. But I know you know this from working as a tutor through the Writing Center on campus, too, that some of the women you're talking about are also coming out of school systems that has marked up their writing with red pen, that has told them the way they're conjugating verbs is not standard, has made them feel that their grammar is off. 
Um, how how would you respond to that, that sometimes the women who need to tell these stories have been made to feel that their English is bad? Well, I can say that teaching at the UW for 10 years and then working with the Odyssey Project for a couple of years, the students at the UW do really well with grammar. They know where to put their periods. They um, know how to conjugate their words. But where they struggle with is having a strong voice. Mm -hmm. The women that you will see at an Odyssey Project or women you will see um, in a community where they haven't had um, a university education, they may struggle with the periods. They may struggle with the conjugation, but their voices are so strong. Their ability to tell and narrate a story is so strong. Um, It's captivating. And they're speaking from the heart. And I think that's one of the things that I see in every story that's in your book and in some of the stories that I've seen through the Odyssey Project is that they're speaking authentically and not trying to think, hmm, I'm going to write a clear thesis statement to get a good grade in a class. They're speaking um, with power and, and also sharing a lot of themselves yes. in a very vulnerable way. I mean, yes. I'm just I'm I'm amazed with the stories in this book how open some of the women can be about, and that that goes to you as well Thank to speak you. openly about what's happened to you within your family or, or within your community. You take a risk. Yes. Have you kind of experienced that in terms of being vulnerable enough to say this is what happened to me? These are some of the things that that occurred. Have you sometimes felt that you've gone out on a limb that's a bit shaky and that it's come back to to be painful? You know, um, I think I've experienced the opposite. People really admire these women. So many people have pulled me aside after reading these women's stories or hearing about these women's stories, and they start telling me their own stories. There is a freedom that these women kind of inspire the idea of there is they've modeled the power in being able to own your own narrative and to be able to own it unapologetically and to being able to be a power and being able to control that narrative and so I was expecting to be stoned to death (laughs) Um, I was very nervous and in the two and a half years we've been doing this work that hasn't been our reality, not once. And what do you attribute that to? Is it that, do you think that what you've tapped into is something much more universal than you thought? Yes. I was very surprised when I was being prepped for um, a media interview, and one of the women who was a um, media relations person, I can't remember her, oh, she was our PR person, she stopped me in the middle of the interview, in the middle of the prepping, and said, now I'm starting to be confused about whether or not these women's stories are specific to them or... And it's confusing me because I'm seeing myself in these stories. And I don't know if, if, if it's okay, but I can't. It's undeniable. These things that these women have experienced, even though they don't look like me and, they're ba- and, I, and their backgrounds are very different from mine, I see myself in their stories. And so I think that sense of public confusion um, has also 
helped people understand, helped start to kind of establish some type of bridge between people that are seemingly very, very different. More on infamous mothers when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. know, like I said, I never expected to even be here today with six grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. That's a blessing. I was not a good mother. I had my child at the age of 14, and I let my mother, who had neglected me, raise my daughter. Funny how the cycle of madness continues on and on unless it is plucked out by its roots. But I got a chance to help with the development of my grandchildren, and I also got to help my great-grandchildren. I'm not the woman I used to be. I'm married, and the man that I am married to has his doctorate. And I have friends that have their doctorates. I'm in church regularly. And I just started a book club. I work regularly. And my life is just really good, and I'm happy. That's the story of Lenora, one of the stories featured in Infamous Mothers, a collection edited by my guest, Sagacious Levingston. We're talking about infamous mothers in literature and life. What strikes you about Lenora's story there, because what, what jumped out to me was that reference to the cycle of madness, kind of this, this idea that it's hard to break out of a cycle. What I like about Lenora's story, particularly this passage, is these passages is it represents or it's a good example of how the work is not, is not meant to be reactionary. It's not meant to say these stereotypes that exist about black women are... Um, rooted and complete, are rooted in complete um, myth. They're not true. These women are on and say, yeah, I can see why you see me in this particular way. Um, where It's not meant to kind of um, debunk old models. It's meant to expand them. And so it's meant to expand our idea and representations of black womanhood. So to kind of address what I go back to kind of um, clarify is not meant to expand a stereotype. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's meant to kind of acknowledge the complexity of these women. And so, for instance, Lenora is saying, yeah, I wasn't a good mother. Yeah, I left my mom, my daughter to be raised by my mom who did not do a good job of raising me. Um, but that's not the woman I am today. And here's what I've done um, since and here are the ways in which I'm helping my daughter. Here's the ways in which I've kind of changed my life to break this cycle. I appreciate that because when other people are telling narratives about these women, they leave it at the part where the mom is just neglectful. There's no context. There's no understanding. There's no ways in which um, these women are taking responsibility. Is just here's the stereotype. Here's how we understand these women, and that's it. But in owning their own narratives, the women are saying, no, there's some complexity to this. I wasn't I didn't um, start out this way. I didn't create myself to be this way. Um, There's a lot of context that we need to unpack when we talk about the lives of these women. And so I appreciate Lenora's story. I also appreciate the fact that her story talks about the ways in which she's on the other end of the spectrum, how 
she is contributing to society, how she's married, how... And it's not, it's less about, this is important, less, not because, um, I appreciate this part of her story because it inspires other women who are going through what she's going through. I'm less interested in the ways in which it makes other people feel comfortable, but I'm more interested in the ways in which it inspires another woman who's going through something similar to Lenora um, to think, wow, this can actually, I can actually have a happy ending. Sure, just the way they can look at you and say, well, I'm sagacious mother of six coming out of South Side of Chicago, but PhD, you know, business owner, et cetera, that you can look to someone as representative of a future, kind of speculative yes. life rather than speculative fiction. Here's something yes. I could do. I know you also do training yes. for, not for the, you know, you, you work with the women who are telling mm-hmm. the stories, but you're also working with companies and organizations and agencies trying to help them see the women that mm-hmm. are their clients or people that they're working with in a different way. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that, because that's a completely different approach than going into the streets of Chicago and finding someone with an inspirational story mm-hmm. and hearing her voice. You're actually trying to target employers. Yes. So one of the things um, I remember looking at, I don't remember what movie it is, but you had, I think, Morgan Freeman. He was the black, he was a black president um, in a movie. And... And being able to have that vision, I think, or being able to see it on television over time, by the time we ended up with a black president, it wasn't so far-fetched because we'd already seen it. I think if when companies are thinking about diversity, they have a very limited idea of what diversity means. They're thinking about diversity in terms of race. They're thinking about diversity in terms of um, nationalities, people coming from other places. But I, often something in terms of um, the experiences that a mother brings to the table and a mother who is considered marginalized mom is often overlooked and not thought of. Um, instead, we see moms as a liability. That's why we pay them less. You One day, you're, you know, you have to take care of your children. An emergency is going to come up. So we're going to pay you less. And we can't really fully see the value of you. And so my work really helps organizations and companies to rethink the role of women who care for children in the workplace. And my, role, my work is to um, focus on how do we make workplaces more hospitable towards these women, but how do we help them earn a living wage and how do we help them climb professionally in the environment? And part of the way that we pitch this is we talk about the overall value that these women can bring to the company, the diverse perspective that they can bring to the company. So we take a diversity approach um, to these discussions about mothers in the workplace, marginalized moms in the workplace. Is some of that helping the uh, perspective of employers see the strength in these women? Yes. In other words, if you can, you know, as a teen mom, still graduate from high school and do this and this and this, that suggests that you've got some kind of resilience and stamina and um, strength that that others might not see. So everyone was the world. So this country was just really inspired when Cheryl um, Sandberg came out with Lean In, right? And she gave these kind of steps about how women should be leaning in and and kind of take more responsibility in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And 
my response to that is these moms have been leaning in forever, but we wouldn't we wouldn't make room for them. We often don't make room for them. And so she'd already talked about the importance of the women. What we hadn't talked about is the fact that there are women who are already doing the thing that she was prescribing, um, which implies that these women weren't included in the model she was establishing because it was kind of behind what these women were already doing. And so the question, um, we talk about resilience. We talk about the ways in which these women are extraordinary and there's proof of it in, in the things that they've already accomplished just by living. But we also talk about the ways in which these women um, are willing to step up. You don't have to, where she's encouraging women to step up, we're saying you already have um, a population of women who are doing it, but you are not trained to kind of make room for these efforts. And so part of our work is to help them um, rethink this. One of the books that I read recently when it was the Go Big Read selection at UW, um, Evicted, mm. talked about how um, black single mothers are targeted by landlords in the same way that we've got the disproportionate locking up of black men in Wisconsin. We also hear, and throughout the country, disproportionately lock out Mm -hmm. black mothers from housing. Mm -hmm. And it gave an example in one point where a woman was beaten by her boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and so she called 911, and then the landlord kicked her out because she was a nuisance because of that call to 911. So she was doubly... Victimized. Yes. Um, I'm curious about the sort of intersection between the work you're doing and then what I guess I would call social policy or mm-hmm. sort of the reality of things that have to do with housing, child care, um, welfare laws, other things. Have you been sort of pulled into that sphere? So a lot of the work that I do is um, around training social workers. How do we train institutions and systems to think differently about this population and how do we train um, these institutions and systems to create policy that intentionally think about the empowerment of this population. Um, And so, you know, I'm a firm believer that a lot of times the people who make the policies are not connected with the with the population themselves. And, and, the evidence supported, can you think of three politicians or three people in power who are single moms, right? When I started doing the research, I couldn't find those people. So if these folks are not making, if they're not in positions of power, then who's making the policies and how aware and informed are they about the policies, the ways which these policies affect people? And so my work is very, very committed to... Um, part of the work we do is help the women themselves think about ways in which they can become active citizens. How do you promote and how do you um, encourage the creation of bills and policies and rules that shape your lives versus leaving that um, power to other people? And so we do it twofold. We train the people who make the decisions, but we also train the people who are affected by the decisions. By training, you mean to get them to think about voting or get them to be informed or get them to understand the connection between their own lives and the policies coming from above? So one of the things, early on, I went to an event. I had no idea where I was going. Someone invited me there. I trusted the person. And it was um, a room full of well-off white women 
who had pooled their funds together to endorse a female candidate from Milwaukee. And I remember thinking, I don't see that happening on the south side of Chicago. I'm sure that's not happening here in Madison, where a room filled full of working class black women are pulling their resources together to endorse someone who um, is a strong representative of the issues that affect these women. Why don't we start having training the women to do do this very same thing? And so that's part of the work that we do. How do you think about your role as a citizen and how do you um, become empowered in that role or how do you exercise your power in that role? If, and I know seeing into the future is difficult to do, but if things went the way you would like to see them mm-hmm. go and the infamous mothers spread as a sort of a movement and and kind of got the play that you're looking for it to have nationwide and also internationally, what would be different if I have you back 10 years from now? Mm. I think the wage gap will close for women in general, right? Because a lot of, when we think about the wage gap, the wage gap is really um, a motherhood gap. We penalize women for becoming mothers. So that will close, but it will close for all women, right? Um, Often we're not thinking about this particular population when we think about the wage gap. Another thing is we will see more women who are falling under the infamous infamous mother's umbrella as successful entrepreneurs. They have the resources that they need to um, pull off their businesses. What we've noticed is that Roughly 70% of the women in this book project have attempted entrepreneurship, but they haven't had their support or the resources. Um, and so we will see more successful black women entrepreneurs who are mothers. I want to be very specific about that. And we will see more um, fiction and science fiction, uh, more novels and more autobiographies that really kind of expand the narrative around these women. And we will see a shift in culture in general about um, we'll see a shift in culture um, in general um, regarding discussions around these women and the way and policies created to support the lives of these families. I understand some of the voices in your book are going to make their way onto the stage with an adaptation at the Bartell Theater in October. Yes, early November. And we're really excited about that. So the play is a little different from the book in that the play um, focuses on um, women who are part of a book club who are reflecting on the issues in the book. And as they reflect on the stories in the book, we start seeing some of the challenges they're facing um, bubble up as well. And you'll have more seven- and eight-year-old girls like you were who will just go ahead and call the White House. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) My guest has been Sagacious Levingston. She is the editor of a collection called Infamous Mothers and a CEO of a company that uses that name as well. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you. I'm Emily Auerbach, hoping you can join us for the next hour of University of the Year. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. Uh